Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. I like to think that you've picked a good day to come by. Well, I like to think that any day is a good day to come by the House of Krause, except I know some of you have come by, you've rapped on the door, and then there's been no one home. You leave disappointed. Here's the dirty little secret. Sometimes we're actually home, but we're not ready for guests. So we're looking through the keyhole. If we don't like the cut of your jib, we just stay very quiet until you go away. Today, though, we welcome you with open arms. We're really happy that you're here because we've got a really interesting show for you. Philip Norman, we'll talk to him in a few minutes. He is a legendary journalist. He wrote the definitive book on the Beatles called Shout in 1981. Since then, it's been reprinted many, many times. He's written 30 more books, hundreds of column inches worth of editorials and columns. Uh, I'm going to talk to him about his book about Mick Jagger. He has a new book now about Paul McCartney, but I I pulled this one out of the vault because uh, I thought that I knew everything there was to know about Mick Jagger, but Norman has an interesting take on him. I think you'll enjoy that. Also, if you are a fan of the Four Hanky book or movie, uh, Jojo Moyes is a name that you will know. She is the author of a number of books, most notably, I guess, Me Before You. It's a big bestseller, a big weepy bestseller, and it's now a big time movie starring Amelia Clark. We know Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. She's the dragon lady on that show. Much different kind of thing here. She plays Louisa, the main character of Me Before You, who is a young woman, kind of aimless, drifting through life a little bit until she takes a job as a caregiver, uh, working for a very wealthy young man. Sparks Fly, is it a romance, is it a tragedy? Well, if you've read the book, you know, The movie comes out soon. You can have a look and decide for yourself. So let's have a a listen to Jojo Moyes and Amelia Clark talking about me before you. I understand that you heard about this uh, or the inspiration for the story as a news story to begin with. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so I was driving my kids home from school one afternoon and I heard, I think this is like 2008, 2009, and I heard this story on the news about a young athlete who had been left quadriplegic after an accident and several years into life as a quadriplegic had persuaded his parents to take him to Dignitas, which is a centre for assisted suicide in Switzerland, to end his life. And I, I was just really shocked by this story because, you know, as a human and as a parent, I could not envisage how a parent would agree to do that. And I, I kept thinking I would fight to the death to keep my kids alive. and. Because I'm an ex-journalist, I started to read around it and read more about this young man and read more about the issue, and I discovered it just wasn't quite as black and white as I wanted to believe. And then it got me thinking, well, what would I be like if I were him? And what would it be like to be his mother? And what would it be like to be his girlfriend? Um, Because we all want to think we'd be like Christopher Reeve, but actually, I'm not sure I would. I think maybe I would be horrible and angry, and, and then this character just grew in my head, and it was actually... Given the subject matter, weirdly, the easiest book I've ever written. And I think possibly that also came because I had no publisher at the time. So I had I was writing it for me. I wrote it exactly as I wanted to, with no input from anybody. And look what happened. Kind of free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll come back to that okay. in a sec. But uh, no, what was it then that grabbed you about the story? We hear the news story mm-hmm. angle here for Amelia. What was it for you that, that brought you in when you saw the script? Well, I was sent, my agent said, listen, this is being made into a movie, but I'm sending you the book. 
before I sent you the script. So I started, so I read the book, the amazing book first. And it was, so I was reading it to, to, to be in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? To hope, to want to see if I wanted to be in it. And the first couple of pages of Lou and I was like, this is who I am. This is so much me in every way. And then the story on top of that and the beauty within it and the, Oh, the the heartbreak and the joy and the laughter and all of it just fell on top of each other and I was like, yes. <laughs> so so does that mean then that you are relentlessly cheery, that you make yeah. bad jokes? I can vouch for yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 These yeah. are all things. That I'm, you... a, I'm a. She's I'm about eighty percent, eighty-seven percent, Louisa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd say yeah. so. I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. Better dress yeah. sense. Thank you. Thank you. Got a stylist. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, you're wearing you're wearing much more conservative yeah. shoes today. I know than, today than I am. Yes, film, yes, but. yes, yes. But I have some crazy ones in my closet. <laughs> uh, over the time uh, that this book has been out, uh, I think the ideas about and surrounding euthanasia have changed a, mm-hmm. a great deal. Um, tell me, uh, if you were writing the book today, would it be? Well, I guess you wrote the script, so maybe you you continue mm-hmm. with the story. Would the story be different for you? Would the characterizations be different for you? No, because I don't have any answers. Right. That's the key. I mean, right. the thing that strikes me is, as a as a society, we are facing this issue more and more because medical science is keeping people alive, and we don't know what to do with those lives. We don't know how to give them hope and pleasure and, yeah, just dignity, I, I guess. And um, so I probably wouldn't change a thing because, you know, it's not a how-to manual. It doesn't fall on any side of it. There are going to be, you know, there are people in the in the story who profoundly disagree with Will's decisions. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, we tried to make sure that all uh, viewpoints were accounted for. Um, but no, I don't have the answers. I guess all I feel very strongly is that you can't judge somebody who's in that position. You can't judge anybody for the positions they make in extraordinary circumstances because you're not there, you're not in their shoes. The film is a mix of, of some very light moments and some very serious moments. Mm-hmm. And often Lou has to flip-flop between something light and I think I'm thinking of the scene on the beach near the end that doesn't really yeah. give anything much away mm-hmm. but the changes like that in that yeah. moment tell me a little bit about just finding the balance in her character between those moments where you're effervescent and fizzy and bubbly and all those things and then one moment and then the next you have to change remarkably um well I, I I trained at drama school and the biggest the biggest lesson that you can that I could take away from it is Everything you need to know about a character is found in the script. Right. Everything you need to know is found in the words. So I, I can I can say, vouch for the for the for the ease with which I, as an actor, was able to do that is because of the words. Because when they're there, then you can. Because there's a reason for it, and I understand it innately. Because if things are getting too dire, I'm gonna crack a joke <laughs> as best I can. We're gonna laugh through this, and it's always in that moment. It's always that that peak of when you're something bad's happened and you're like let's laugh about it and it's as you're laughing you start crying also with this part I cared so much we all did and Thea Sharrick our incredible director mm-hmm. me and Sam also Sam and I also um, had a rigorous rehearsal process oh, so yeah. I got to know her so well and we got to know our story and it's so because just... Thea's a theatre director mm-hmm. probably initially That's it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly exactly it's kind of a meeting of minds so when um, when you've got all of that knowledge, then someone just needs to say one thing, and you're there because you've built you've built her within you, and you've built the story around you, and so it just that was that was it. I think the word you guys used a lot around was you felt safe. 
Yeah. You know, she she Which pulled is them so down, much. but she did it in a safe oh. place. Yeah. I call her mum. Yeah. <laughs> like, legit, I call her mum. I'm like, mum, what am I doing? Um, so, yeah, that's a safe place. <laughs> she made a safe place. Do you think that the success of this book, because I think it's fair to say that this was the first really successful book of yours. I think that's yours. very that's fair to say. Fair, I had not right? troubled the bestseller charts yeah, until this right. book, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, was because you wrote it with no expectation towards an audience or thinking that, oh man, I need to keep my publisher happy. So, and, no, uh, I think it's a lot of things, but I think the, the thing that really stands out for me, it's the first book I ever used humor in. Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't anticipated how much people like to laugh as well as cry mm-hmm. and for you know all the early responses that came in it was people just saying oh you know this made me laugh so much one minute and made me cry the next and and also it just has two characters who unusually for me fell fully formed into right. my imagination that doesn't always happen let me tell you and they were so strong I, basically the, the scene that fell into my head first was the wedding wheelchair dance right. yeah, yeah. and mm. from that exchange between them you know about the breasts I knew exactly who each of them were, and I could still put those two characters in any situation now and know how they would react. I, I That's my that, favorite, my, my favorite is it? day. Yeah. My favorite oh, really? days. Yeah. yeah, my favorite favorite. Well, it looked beautiful. Like just for just be, from where you were, yeah. it looked beautiful. It looked like an amazing place to be. Yeah, it was, uh, it but, was beautiful. But it's a beautiful scene, and that line I think gets the funniest laugh or the biggest laugh well, in the audience that ne- I saw. never left those breasts so close well, to me. And then, yeah. Or you would never really? be seen. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, that's that, With the audience that I saw, that's oh, the line really? that got, I think, the biggest okay. laugh. Because I've not seen it with an audience. I mean, an audience yeah. aside from like, my mum, my dad, yeah. and my best mates. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just laughed and cried and laughed and cried. Yeah, exactly. My dad's like, don't look at me. Tell me a little bit about your working relationship with Sam, because uh, again, he's kind of you know a bugger at the beginning of this. Yes, he is. And, Good and, yeah. work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so tell me about working with him. You had a long rehearsal uh, process, which yes. must have been helpful. Hugely helpful. Well, we were both incredibly supportive of each other. I knew he went. He underwent the greatest physical transformation, mm-hmm. not only in just needing to maintain the integrity of someone who's in that position. But also, physically, he lost so much weight right. and had to go through this really dire diet situation, which we were all like, gonna have to be the smiley ones today. <laughs> you're like, literally, I came into rehearsals once. It was the saddest thing that ever happened. I came dressed and I was like bright and early and um, was just busying about my own business. And then Thea came in and she was like, Sam's already in. And I was like, what? He was just curled up on the sofa, oh, no. just like asleep. Exhausted. Like, oh just my exhausted because he's only had a yeah. rice cake the day before or something. Yeah. But, um, but we got on so well. It was like the easiest, the easiest thing ever. That was also a huge thing that helped because what you need in your actor is for someone to be generous and supportive. And I think we really, on equal measure, like like Will and Lou, were there for each other. Right. So he was... He knew when I needed what I needed and I knew when he needed what he needed. And Thea was like the mastermind overseer who would kind of prod me in a certain way on his close-up and him in a certain way on mine to get that perfect Mm. mix. When uh, casting something Mm. like this, you have a very good idea of what the characters are. But do you keep in mind that there are millions of people out there in the world that have read the book that also have very clear ideas about yeah, I felt uh, who like the character are and decide influence you Huge responsibility to those people because it's not like this has only been read by 20,000 people. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is a much bigger thing. But I will defy anybody to see Amelia as Lou and not feel that mm-hmm. you know this is a true representation of the character. Um, 
for me, that was going to be the trickiest bit of casting because she's not a supermodel. She's not someone who is kind of, you know... You can't have the traditional Hollywood blondie, you know, whatever. I mean, not that you're yes. not gorgeous. But um, for me, Amelia has this kind of innate warmth and quirkiness in her personality, as well as being the right physical type. I mean, she's possibly a tiny bit slimmer than the Louise of my head. But now when I... No, just the boobs. Just more boobs. When I picture Lou, I can't help but picture Amelia. So that's how fully she's taken root in my imagination. I don't mean that in a creepy way. <laughs> well, I could no, come yeah, across really bad. Yeah, no, 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 no. And now I'm picturing no. you in my imagination. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm Giselle, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, did you feel pressure taking on this part that you know people, I read the reviews of the book. Oh, Go online and read the reviews were, of the book. Oh and people are just like crying, like I, I couldn't yeah. stop weeping when yeah. I read this and I couldn't, yeah. so there's a lot of pressure there, right? Or no? Huge, no, 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 there is, there is but it, it's, it's kind of my want recently to just do those roles like right. Game of Thrones and Terminator where the mantle's set really high <laughs> so I was like okay but with this it was a different thing where I was like mm-hmm you guys think you know who she is I know who she is right. and I'm a player and I think you'll all agree and also I'm English so I'm kind of <laughs> 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 only the English yeah. people can really like stick with me for that <laughs> that Amelia Clark she's quite a firecracker I liked her. I'm not a huge Game of Thrones fan, so I haven't spent a lot of time watching that, so I didn't come in with a lot of preconceived notions about dragons and, and anything like that. Uh, I came in only having really seen her in Me Before You, and she is a lot like the character Louisa. We talked about that in the interview a little bit, but she's got this broad smile. I, I would imagine that the director of the film needed a, an extra wide kind of angle lens just to contain the width and breadth of that smile. She was really quite something. She was a lot of fun. Enjoyed talking to her. Philip Norman is a legendary journalist. He's been writing uh, since the 60s about pop culture. Uh, he's written for newspapers, written books, done the whole thing. But his specialty is writing about kind of British invasion era music uh, in these long incredibly detailed and very well-researched books. We're going to talk about his Mick Jagger book. He has a new book out right now about Paul McCartney. It just came out this month. Uh, but I'm a big Stones fan, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Rolling Stones and about Mick Jagger, and I was wrong. Here's a lesson. Keith Richards said about Mick Jagger, he said, he's an interesting bunch of guys. And I wonder when you have someone who has tried to control his media personality to the extent to which Mick Jagger has, uh, someone who, as you write in your book, says, I don't remember a great deal of times, a great many times when he's asked about the past. How do you begin writing a book about someone like this? Well, of course, you begin, uh, in my case, by writing a book about the Beatles, uh, because the Beatles and the Stones were so closely linked. They were supposed to be such enemies, such rivals. Uh, they weren't. They were very good friends. They collaborated. They almost merged at one point, had the same office in the same recording studio. Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, could have uh, managed the Stones at one point. Um, they really got on well together, these, you know, these Liverpudlians and these uh, Londoners, London area boys. Um, you'd think they were so different. But in fact, Mick... Jagger and John Lennon were very good friends right up until almost until the end of Lennon's life. And uh, it was while I was doing my Beatles book that I met Andrew Oldham, Andrew Lug Oldham, who was the, the inspirational manager of the Stones, who really invented Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger was a, um, a, a blues singer 
not particularly confident, uh, didn't expect to make a lot of money because the blues didn't make money. They, the, the Stones were a blues band who did blues covers. And uh, Andrew Oldham said to him, uh, because Andrew Oldham realized the Beatles were getting a little bit safe now mm -hmm. uh, by 1963. Uh, mums and dads and grandparents even started to love the Beatles. Uh, Andrew Oldham realized he could invent a band of anti-Beatles um, who just didn't have to be that bad, but they just wouldn't have to smile and bow and be, you know, and be, simper and be nice. And Andrew Oldham really said to Mick, uh, if you pretend to be wicked, you'll get rich. <laughs> and Mick said, OK. And f that's what he's been doing for 50 years, pretending to be wicked. Well, do you think it's safe to say then that Andrew Lug Oldham and not Mick Jagger really invented the idea of the modern rock star? Yes. Uh, he didn't immediately do that because the, the Stones and Mick were launched as a uh, just a pop group. They mm -hmm. were matching uniforms. But Andrew Oldham began to see that uh, the, the real market was... With, for some bad boys. Mm -hmm. There really hadn't been any bad boys. Rock and rollers were thought to be bad boys, like Elvis Presley, but they all were people who'd learned to sing in church. I mean, they were extremely nice, well-brought-up young Americans. Um, but if you could invent these sort of lawless, these outlaws, uh, who just challenged all the mores of the day, up to that point, um, pop groups had tried to go mainstream, go into movies and learn to tap dance. Mm -hmm. The Stones were never going to do that. Well, you talk uh, in the in the book uh, about a famous television show where at the end of the show, everyone goes up and they stand on a balcony and they wave and the Stones just said, no way. It's what yeah. everyone's done before us and we're not going to do it that yeah, way. All the, all the great American rock and rollers mm -hmm. who visited, the, it's the London Palladium and it was the Sunday night show from the London Palladium and the Stones wouldn't get onto the revolving platform and wave goodbye with the showgirls and the other <laughs> and, and the other um, artists like, like the, uh, tap dancers and yes, things that could be anybody right but, oh yes it was like sort of cartoon rabbits you right. know and uh, <laughs> um, conjurers and magicians um, and this caused absolute revulsion throughout the nation they wouldn't get on the revolving platform of the london palladium <laughs> and it wasn't very long after that that the british establishment thought this has gone too far these boys have got to be taken down a few pegs mm -hmm. particularly this uh, mick jagger and that's when this raid was conducted on Keith's uh, cottage in, in Sussex. And as a result of that raid, Mick and Keith were both uh, uh, put on trial for the most minute drugs offences, in, in, particularly in Mick's case. Um, Mick was caught in possession of four um, travel sickness pills mm -hmm. um, that were, had amphetamine content, were legal throughout Europe, but not in the UK. Well, he had bought them in Italy, right? Legally, I think, right? And in fact... Uh, they didn't even. Be they belonged to his girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, right. and uh, and like the true English gent that he can often be, uh, Mick said, you know, her career couldn't stand this, and so he would take the rap. But he didn't hold up very well when it all really started to happen. He he didn't hold up well because he went to jail for uh, he, not very long, but he went to jail. Well, in fact, you can say that you know he did hold up well because. Um, Nobody expected, not even the police expected them, him and Keith to get jail terms. Right. The police said this minor offence should get probation or a caution. He was in, in jail in Lewis um, for a couple of nights and then he was put into Brixton prison. Um, and of course, you know, a young man of, you know, in those days to go into I mean, a really tough prison, mm -hmm. which he now says he can't remember which prison it was. <laughs> um, but afterwards, 
he would have had he could have sued people he could have right. gone a round of the chat shows saying my prison ordeal he could have written a book about it he simply didn't he just went on with his life now that is uh, that's mick of course he wants to get on with the future never never the past but it shows a sort of amazing dignity that you can't imagine a, a young pop star today showing it at all. Well, it's interesting because I think an, he's, he's, he's a conundrum. He's lots of different things. As you say, he's, he showed that he was the English gentleman that he could sometimes be. But he was also outrageous, at least in his behavior in public, in his personal life with the way he treated women frequently. Uh, he, was, he was not always very nice. Uh, but I think that in those days, do you think that he made such a name for himself because it was easier to shock people then than it would be today? It was very easy to shock mm -hmm. people. I mean, going to the Savoy Hotel without a tie... <laughs> it went off. It went off the. the went off the graph. You know the public revulsion and shock. Uh, um, but still, uh, uh, Andrew Oldham pump, pumped up this. Uh, he he put it out to the press that the stones were um, dirty. Mm -hmm. Because they had long hair. They were all obsessive hair washers. Brian Jones washed his hair twice a day. He was called Mr. Shampoo by the others. <laughs> Charlie Watts. Uh, I talked to someone who had a brief affair with Charlie Watts, and uh, she said Charlie's underwear was cleaner than hers. And um, Mick, if you see early footage of Mick on stage, he glows with cleanliness, glows with it. He's just come out of the laundromat, you know. Um, but still, it was, you know, the kids love this idea of these sort of these vagabonds. He's been a superstar for 50 years. That's right. And you would never have imagined in the 1960s that the Stones uh, would last this mm -hmm. long and because they were the most unstable of all the bands in the 60s. You know, uh, two of them went to jail. Uh, one of them was found dead in his swimming pool. They owed the taxman a huge fortune. They had to get out of the country. Two more of the members over time uh, quit very in great bitterness. Mm -hmm. And yet they were the ones that lasted. Well, you say in the book that without Mick, the Stones would have been over by 1968. I think that yes, that's true. After the after the bust, when Mick and Keith were in, were in jail, any other group would have been really been finished. Um, but Mick was very astute, and he realised that they had to put their finances in the hands of someone he could trust. Mm -hmm. He took on a financial advisor who devised a strategy where they could get back to America, um, go back on tour. It took a long, long time, but they were virtually broke by the end of the 60s. Um, now, if it had been left to Keith Richards, they <laughs> would now be a tribute band, you know, uh, doing sort of Scarborough, you know, a gold, <laughs> golden oldies once a year with a lot of other pathetic old has-beens. But no, Mick not only kept them going, but kept them somehow being cool and dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these elderly men, grandfathers as they are, um, young people still think they have this whiff of sort of sulfurous naughtiness. Well, I think that they may well be... The, when I think of rock stars, I think of the Rolling Stones. I don't think so much of Axl Rose. I don't think of Scott Weiland. I don't think so much of people that have come after them. Uh, because I think that they, as you, you talk about in the book, sort of set the template for this and did it better than anybody else. That's true. Now, the Beatles were not a rock band. They were a pop group, mm -hmm. and they were absolutely inimitable right. uh, as a group. But the Stones really were the first rock band where there was a man out in front without a guitar. Right. Uh, who, but his, his body was the, an instrument as much as his voice. And the, the, the pattern that Jagger sort of created for the rock star, almost every other charismatic frontman has had to follow in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. Only Jim Morrison 
found a new way of holding a microphone. Jim Morrison used to hold the microphone like a frightened baby bird <laughs> that he was comforting. Um, but the rest of them, they all hold the microphone when, they were, when the technology was for microphones. Right. They held them like a, you know, like a phallus, just yeah. like Mick did. And all those moves are moves like Jagger. I mean, a, you know, a really young pop song around is called Moves Like Jagger mm-hmm. because they're all his apprentices. Tell me a little bit about the cover photo. Uh, this is a, a black and white photo. I'm guessing probably from about 1978, something like that. Yes. And and he looks uh, young. The, the beginnings of the wrinkles that you talk about in his face are, are, are beginning to show here a little bit. But he looks kind of vulnerable but uh, defiant at the same time. And I wonder if that's part of the uh, multi, uh, the, the, the aspects of his, his character that make him so compelling to us. Well, he doesn't, he wants, he doesn't want to be vulnerable. Um, he has never let himself appear vulnerable. Right. Um, e- even on the worst sort of occasions, like the Altamont Festival, when a spectator was stabbed to death in front of the stage, you know, he didn't, he didn't break down. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. upset. didn't seem to be upset, but, you know, behind the scenes, he is an extremely vulnerable character, yes. And there is a sort of insecurity there. That's the only way you can explain the fact that um, he has wanted the love of the public so much. It's never enough. It's like rich people are never rich enough. Right. Um, s- megastars never get enough attention. I thought that I knew everything there was to know uh, about Mick Jagger. And uh, you uncovered things here that um, even uh, surprised even me. So tell me uh, how long, I mean, these are kind of really basic. How long did you work on this? This took me two years to research and write. Now, uh, that to me wasn't so long after John Lennon. The John Lennon biography took three years. um, And this was a a lighter subject. It didn't have the emotional sort of weight of John Lennon. Mm -hmm. and you do need luck. Um, and I did have, you have to believe in luck, of course, right. a biographer's luck. And I did have <laughs> luck. Um, but for instance, yes, I, this sort of strange, almost psychosis about Mick is that he says he can't remember anything um, about this amazing career. And although that does sort of fend off awkward questions about his sex life, it cancels out so much real achievement mm-hmm. and highs and lows that no one else can match in that line of work at all. But isn't it about the myth, though? Isn't it? Mick Jagger is a myth builder. And if people, I, my, my feeling would be, and, and you talk about this in the book, if he gets, uh, if people know too many specifics, the myth seems to float away a little bit. And then part of the magic goes. It's true. And the, and the millions are in the myth. Mm-hmm. And he knows that, of course. <laughs> but still, um, he never bothers to respond to uh, you know, anything, that uh, any misinformation. Mm-hmm. The famous example is the Altamont Festival where this spectator was, was, was knifed by the Hells Angels and his behaviour was always said to be vain and shallow and callous and the, he made the stones play sympathy for the devil when the sun went down and unleashed some kind of satanic force. They weren't playing sympathy for the devil. They, they, they were playing under my thumb mm-hmm. and a sort of Muzak version to calm the crowd and he was pr- almost praying to the crowd to calm down and... Uh, he himself behaved with great courage because the Grateful Dead had organized this festival, not the Stones. Mm-hmm. The Grateful Dead had fled the scene when it started getting nasty, but Mick uh, finished the show. And, and the stage was covered with these Hells Angels who all looked as if they wanted to kill him as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see that in the film. Absolutely. Uh, now, I went on uh, Facebook. I asked people, what would you like to ask Philip Norman? And I got inundated with <laughs> questions. And we don't have very much time. But uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of them. Um, 
you've answered a, a few of these, but uh, one of the, the uh, writers wanted to know about the Elma Combo. And if you were able, because the Elma Combo, the famous show here in Toronto, it's legendary in Toronto and Canada. Uh, did you find out anything new? Is the question? There's a lot, really. Again, it's the positive side of Mick. Now, mm -hmm. you would have think you would think that when you know Keith is arrested and charged with trafficking, um, Mick would just f fly the scene. Mm -hmm. um, Mick was really supportive. He stayed. He organised. He coordinated the defence of Keith. Keith was under, then under sort of house arrest in America, um, and Mick. And Jerry Hall, who was around by that time, um, looked after Keith. I mean, like a sort of sick child. Um, again, this is the positive side. The, you know, big Mr. Cool doesn't talk about that. Um, there aren't many people who would have done that. Well, that's it. Enjoyed talking to Philip Norman. Enjoyed talking to Jojo Moyes. Enjoyed talking to Amelia Clark. Most of all, enjoyed having you over. Uh, you know... As I said earlier, sometimes you knock and we don't answer. Well, you know what? Next time, just knock a little harder. Come by anytime. The door is always open at the House of Krauss. And if you do come by, we put up a new show every Monday. If you do come by, you never know who else is going to be here. Maybe it'll be one of your favorite people. Maybe it's someone you've never heard of before. But there's always someone interesting hanging around the foyer. <laughs>